if you really love your job, right, if you love what you're doing, you kind of, on the one hand, you're always working, but on the other hand, you're never working. It's kind of, right, we call it like work-life integration. So essentially, I'm working all the time. But work at the same time, you have, that. yeah, instead of balance, but, in, but at the same time, it's so enjoyable. Like, if you give me a day off, I would want to work. Like, that's the thing. You know, I want to. A green finger at a weekend brunch with a fellow Princeton alum inspires a side hustle. And ultimately, a thriving full-time business with 15 people and a big vision. True story. For co-founder Sophie Kahn and her business, Arate, offering modern fine jewelry that's affordable and inspiring. Coming up, you'll hear how the core vision and core DNA of the company has stayed the same since day one. A focus on durable materials, transparent pricing, sustainable production, and tangible giving. The importance of educating consumers about gold, the process of raising money for the company's growth, having a child while running a company, and coming back to work after just two days. Hiring by gut and culture instead of the resume. What it was like to open up her own retail location while on PTO from her full-time job. And the value of believing in yourself and just keeping things going. This is the Entreprenista Podcast. Presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I need to know, how did you and your co-founder meet? This is a question that I always get as well. Yeah, so we met in school. We were actually, this was over 10 years ago in Princeton. So I'm originally from Holland. She's from Morocco. And separately, we basically both ended up in this program. I went through some like scholarship from the Dutch government. She got a scholarship from Princeton. And we met there. It was a very kind of nerdy quantitative program, all men. And then basically, or boys, I guess, because we were quite young. And Bushra and, and myself and a couple of like two other women. So were you both majoring in the same thing? Yes, finance. Exactly. And when I saw her, I'll never forget. I was like, finally, somebody that like seems to have the same interest as I do. So I kind of like jumped on her and uh, we came, became fast friends. Ah. And uh, I know you went into pursued a career in finance after you graduated. Well, so Bushra did a career in finance. I actually, everybody went to finance, but I actually started going to management consulting. Okay. So I went to BCG just because I always, I liked finance from a kind of intellectual perspective and the numbers. Yes. But I never really cared about dealing with money all day. It just didn't interest me as much like from a professional standpoint. So I preferred business. That's why I did uh, management consulting. And then from there, I always kind of when I was 18, I had this like creative streak. I wanted to actually study like fashion design. And my parents were doctors and more conservative. Yes. And they were like, you're, you're good with numbers. You should do something more safe. But I guess even when I was in management consulting, I started focusing on kind of more the consumer luxury clients. Um, and then after a couple of years in uh, in consulting, I went to Marc Jacobs, where I worked for another kind of three years as eventually as director of strategy. So I got to see a little bit of everything. And that's when we came up with Orate at some point. So you came up with the idea while you were working at yeah. Marc Jacobs. Yeah, those were intense years. It still is <laughs> intense years now. But it was, yeah, it was basically, 
I guess it was like three years at MJ. Boucher was at Goldman Sachs. So she she stayed in the finance route. She was there for, you know, six years. And we were having brunch in Nolita at Cafe Gitan, or kind of like, I'm sure you know it yes. too, at our kind of uh, favorite spot. And I had this green finger from this overpriced ring that I had got that looked cool in design, but my whole finger was green. And it got, you know, Boucher and I to talking of how can women like us, like we had good salaries, can't afford real gold. And even if we can afford it, it's like kind of the old school designs, you know, something that doesn't just feel modern and cool. It's overpriced. It's not transparent. It's often marketed, you know, you see a man proposing to a woman, so outdated. It's yes. not talking to women. Yeah. Um, so we were like, we can we can do this better. Um, at the time, there were already companies like Ruby Parker and Tom's. So they were doing the one-for-one one and direct-to-consumers kind of starting. And we were like, we can hopefully try to do this in jewelry. And we got just really inspired. Obviously, we were, had no idea of how to start a company. So we just did it on the side. Um, we started taking classes at Parsons to just learn about jewelry design. Started making some pieces, talking to our friends. They really liked it. Then we built a website and kind of for the long story short, we did it for on the side for like a year or two years. Uh, I went full-time first. Boucher had to wait for green card. Then she went full-time as well. Uh, so it was a very gradual process where we basically got like proof of concept while working, still in full-time jobs. Actually, at some point when it was picking up, I went to uh, Mark Jacobs and I asked if I could do part-time. Okay. And they were fine with that. So from the very beginning, we were very open about this uh, because I didn't want to feel like a double agent. I'm super transparent and direct. I can't, I just can't lie or anything. Yeah, I'm just saying I am what I am. So I just told them, they knew from the very beginning, actually, uh, what we were doing. And as it picked up, they were just also very happy for us. So how did you come up with the name? So the name is very nerdy. We're kind of nerdy too. So (laughs) AU is gold. I don't know if you remember from chemistry. Yes, yes. Rate is kind of stands for quality. And then orate stands for like storyteller, like an orator, uh, because we believe that with orate, obviously it's about the quality, right? And about the fact that it's real gold, gold, but also that you're telling a story with the jewelry you're wearing and more specifically, women have a story to tell. Um, And often that's expressed through, you know, what they're wearing and especially jewelry is often, you know, you get it. The whole idea is that you can get it for your own story. So not by some guy buying it for you, but whatever, you just dumped a guy that you, you know, proud of that you dumped him and you get something for yourself, yes, you get a promotion yeah. or you just feel good or you feel sad, whatever it is, like it's your story or you inherit something uh, from your mom or your grandmother. So whatever it may be, it's kind of like your personal story. And that's what Orit is about. And also even heroifying women, actually, as opposed to just being about jewelry. I love that. I love that. Long story. Uh, but yeah. Was the name easy to come up with or did it take you a while? Actually, Kind of quickly. That's yeah. Great. I mean, and it sounds kind of uh, different. I mean, there are definitely people that my father-in-law is like, it's ugly. <laughs> he hates it. Uh, but I think that's also kind of the point is that it was supposed to sound not as like feminine as like, you know, Sophie and Bushra or whatever. It had to be a little bit strong and different because we're trying to disrupt something. So it can sound a little off or weird or different than usual. Well, I love the name. Thank you. Uh, and I know you had you went back to school to learn more about the jewelry industry, but mm. once you came up with a name, came up with a concept, what was really your first step after that? It was probably just designing the pieces. And it was really funny because in the beginning we thought um, we could just do it ourselves. So we kind of just, you know, drew something on paper and then tried it and didn't look at all what we had imagined. So we're like, okay, so what we need to do is get like a technical designer, you know, somebody that's actually 
done jewelry all their life and we can give the creative direction and work together. So that was actually the first step of just making the pieces um, and getting them to something that actually looked good. And then what we did was interesting. We had literally like 20 of our friends come together and we had all the pieces that we made and we didn't put prices there. We just asked them like, what would you pay for this? And it was crazy because the prices they suggested ranged between like 50 bucks and $5,000 for the same piece. And that's when we realized, wow, people, you know, there's still a whole educational component that needs to come with fine jewelry that often very intelligent, educated people don't actually know the difference between, you know, verme, 14 karat, 18 karat. I do plated. not know. Yeah. I don't know. So. so that's something that we also realized we have to kind of do within Ore to kind of explain the differences because there are pros and cons to different, uh, different types of gold as well. How are you ex- getting that communication out there? So all our channels in a way. So like online, we have, you know, a section about it. On social, we talk about it, you know, in our stories or even sometimes on our just regular posts, blog posts, sometimes interviews in our retail and our stores. The um, We call them more like brand ambassadors, but the sales associates, essentially, they explain it to customers as well. Um, so, yeah, everywhere. It's I think it's very important that you know, you know what you're buying. It's all about this transparent and directness. And what we also found important is that women can decide, like we don't want to dictate. So for instance, a lot of the pieces, I'm trying to see what I'm like wearing, like this piece, you can get it in Vermeer, you can get it in 14 karat gold, or you can get it in 18 karat gold. So it's up to you. And you just like toggle on the website and you see the difference in pricing. So like in Vermeer, this is $200. If you want it in 14 karat gold, it's probably like 800 because it's kind of a big earring. And it's up to you what you Want. I don't even know what that means. What does Vermeil mean? So Vermeil is kind of so. This was like our whole. <laughs> in short, what it is is real gold on top of sterling silver. Ah. So it still is everything that we did it, or it had to be a like intrinsic value. So for instance, you can also do it on top of like brass or copper, but we didn't want to do that. It had to be on top of silver because that's still something you know that has actual value, and it always had to be gold touching your skin. So it's. Solid, like basically real gold on top of sterling silver and then with a very thick layer essentially so that it doesn't come off. So that's Verme and it's the cheapest one. So essentially you can get like much – we use it for more fashion pieces Mm -hmm. and stuff. 14 karat gold just means 14 out of 24 is actual gold and then there are other alloys to make it stronger. So that's for mostly – that's the most commonly used gold in in the US. And then 18 karat gold is just a – bit more higher percentage of gold which people often do for like weddings it's a bit darker yellow um i personally prefer 14 for myself except for like my wedding band uh but some people only want 18 and then there's like 24 karat gold but almost nobody uses that because it's too soft to wear in daily use and it's like really dark yellow so yeah. thank you so much for of that course education. i just learned so so much i can talk about this forever. uh so when did you officially start the company what year was that well, so there's different ways to say it, but like when we both were full time was 2017. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's how Stephanie and I yeah. phrase it too. Like when did we go full time? Exactly. Which for us was in 2012. So 2017. Yeah. So it's, we're still very young. Wow. Yeah. So how many stores do you have? So we have like three, two and a half, three right now. So we have two in New York. One in uh, Madison, and that's the one. That's why I'm saying half because it's getting renovated. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in Williamsburg, and one in DC. And how many employees do you have? So like 15 full-time and then another like 10 in retail, so yeah, 25. Yeah, that is very fast growth. Yeah. How, how has your last two years been? <laughs> <laughs> insane. Well, it's always been insane because even before we were full-time, it was actually also crazy because I had two jobs. Yes. And actually, Boucher and I both got promoted while doing this 
part-time, which actually is interesting. We think that it almost makes you better at your daytime job to do a part-time, to do like a startup on the side because you become way more efficient. So people sometimes think like, oh, I don't have, you know, I can't, I really have a job. Like how could I ever do a startup? But actually our philosophy is that it just makes you think differently about things. You know, like for Bushra, she was more rational. Well, she should explain it, but she was more rational in her trading decisions. It was very much like up or down and that's it. And for me, I felt like because I was thinking about so many different things within the, I guess, the creative industry, I could also, I just had a broader point of view and I was just really efficient with my time. But yeah, so the, even the years like, I would say 2015 to 2017, when we were doing it on the side was also insane because we just had, you know, two jobs and then now it's insane because it's growing really quickly. How have you divided up roles between the two of you? What are your strengths? What are her strengths? Yeah, so we have, the good thing is even, and I'm sure you have that too when you, you know, picked your business partner. I think what's good with us is that we have the same vision because like picking a business partner is like marriage, yes, I think. Yes, for like, sure. We joke that our first joint bank account was with each other, not with our husbands, <laughs> you know? That's true. Um, <laughs> now that you think of it, now that I think about it. Yeah. So no, so we have the same vision about like where we want Ori to go and where we want it to be. And that's super important. But at the same time, we have different strengths. Um, I'm more creative and on the branding and I do the design. Bush was more on the finance. She's like a killer negotiator. I suck at negotiation. So like we have our different sides. Um, we haven't, so while we, we've divided that like that, at the same time, for instance, for like retail and ops, it's a vertical, but we both have our areas within the vertical. So for instance, for operations, I do more like obviously the product stuff and the kind of processes from my days at BCG and Boucher does more the margins and the negotiations similar to retail, very involved with like the build out and the storytelling and the locations and Boucher is much more like the lease negotiations, the finance, the optimization. So we share a lot of the vertical, same for marketing. Um, so yeah, we have a good way of essentially leveraging each other's strengths. Great. Do you ever disagree? Of course, I think it would be bad if we didn't, but we're very direct, both of us. So if we do, we just have an open debate. And I think it always leads to like a better mm -hmm. outcome in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, Curate is a good example. We have this home try-on or have this home try-on that's been doing really well. And Bushra was more on, you know, pushing on the fact that we needed to have insurance for it and potentially like ask customers to leave like a bit of a cost up front so that, you know, on the financial side, we needed to be covered. And I wanted to create this like really good customer experience. And we just landed somewhere in the middle that could have both. Um, so I think at the end of the day, if you do it like that, even for our team, when we hire people, we don't want just yes sayers because that, I don't know, that just doesn't work for us. Right, right. And I think debating, I mean, I've been brought up with debating in my family all the time. People think we're fighting, but it's just Talking. like how we talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's, and Boucher's the same. So I think that's always leads to a better outcome. And what would you say was one of the biggest challenges you faced in that first year where you uh, were full-time? Where we were full-time? I would say the fact that you just don't have, you know, we only started raising, we were very scrappy with our money. So just kind of, you have all these plans but then you have almost no money. So were you self-funded in the beginning? Yes, we're self-funded. And then we raised uh, a seed um, in uh, in 2017 at some point, and then another seed in 2018. Uh, but still very, we did like a total of like five. But we were still very scrappy, you know? So how do you kind of get all the things done that you want to do without spending much? Like for instance, our stores, like we really did the very minimal build-out costs, even though, you know, we had all the money in the world like we knew what we could do um, and even for hiring the team you know how do you get the right people to come 
without being able to offer them much. It's obviously about selling the vision and the dream. So just kind of like being in a very different way, very scrappy with uh, what you're trying to do. And obviously you you still have that mentality. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think we'll ever lose that mentality. Um, Yeah, every dollar counts. And I think the whole team has thought of it like that as well. Who was your first hire? Well, our first like senior hire was somebody called Daria and she's our VP of digital marketing. And we really needed somebody to do performance, you know? So that was something that we have never done within marketing. We were like, okay, how do we, now that we have like our brand and our story, how do we scale? How do we scale in terms of performance? And she's amazing. And we, you know, found her by actually interviews in general. We're always like, we interviewed so many people. I think that's really important. Um, So that was our most senior first hire was within uh, was within marketing because at the end of the day, like right. if you have a website, you still need people yes. to actually get there. So when did you open up your first retail store? Well, that's a funny thing. Actually, even before we went full time. Oh, wow. So I know most- It's very impressive. Yeah, most D2C companies, you know, start online and then do retail. But for us, it was kind of the other, we always believed in the power of retail. And I think a lot of D2Cs are, you know, coming to that same conclusion now. And it was for us simply just because we didn't have, again, Scrappy with our money. And we were like, you know what? Let's just try it. So we had this, we're on Spring Street, which is also where Bushra's office, uh, where, sorry, Bushra's apartment is. And our office was uh, at the time. And then Mark Jacobs was there as well. So we were literally like walking. We were always on Spring Street. We found this like cute little store. I think it was like a thousand a day. Uh, we had like $20,000 in our bank account. So we spent, we booked it for 10 days, 10K. Put in some, that's what so I meant. Like, was it like a pop-up? It was like a pop-up, okay. yeah. We put in some Ikea furniture, or some of our friends helped, and we just put the jewelry out there from the very beginning, when, like during our vacation days, when I was just, had a vacation from MJ and she had a vacation from Goldman. And it was great because we were, you know, we sold so much at the time, like we sold out everything we had. Uh, and you could really see like qualitatively what people thought of the jewelry, in, right? Like that early stage, you want to just hear comments, people saying like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. Oh, this is great. This is light. Oh, I'd love this bigger, like all of those kind of like concepts to kind of get product market fit, but also product improvements. Um, so very early on, we realized, wow, this really works. Uh, so we kept it. We kept retail from the very beginning. And we also so realized- So would you the, continue to just buy more days? And yeah. that same location. Exactly. Are you still in that location or you're somewhere We're else now? thinking of going back there, actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. They renovated at some point. But no, and actually that's always kind of been our strategies to start off with pop-ups, see how they work. And if they work, we go full-time. Because then leases, you know, you can sign longer-term right, leases. Right. So you have a lease on Madison. Mm-hmm. And then where's the other one? Williamsburg. And we'll, right, Williamsburg. And DC. And one of the reasons we're in LA now is because we're looking uh, – for West Coast as well. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Great. Uh, were there any surprises when it came to like real estate and leasing in New York? I mean, or I guess anywhere. Is, there's just crazy stuff, you know. At some point there was like, there's things you can't even think of. Like a retail, <laughs> like a retail director now is like, wow, all this stuff. Like you're a psychologist and, uh, you know, a finance person and everything in one yeah there was you know from the little things of like suddenly a mouse or rodent being in the store and like how to figure that out or customers that are sometimes just like you know can be aggressive or you had like homeless person coming into the store like scaring the brand ambassadors like there's all this stuff happening in general i think one of the things that we kind of always led with was uh trusting our consumer so what we do in our retail stores is that the jewelers is out in the open um, and obviously in the beginning, people were 
thought we were maybe crazy for just not having any protection or, you know, but we wanted to create this different brand experience instead of, you know, when you go into like these traditional fine jewelry companies, it's kind of stuffy. You're kind, you kind of feel awkward They get it with like this key and, uh, and, uh, gloves. And it just is kind of terrifying. So we wanted to do the opposite and kind of democratize real gold. And when you come into the store, you just feel comfortable. And what we learned was that it's working well, you know, we've hardly had any thefts and we can trust our women and the people that are just shopping that it actually works. So that was a big kind of good learning for us in a way. Yeah. That's actually really surprising for me because I would think that that would be a huge risk. Yeah. So you haven't had any theft? No. Good. Yeah. Knocking on wood for you. I know. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Has your vision changed at all since day one for what you want this company to be? It's funny enough, no. I think we were very, very clear in the beginning. We really wanted to create the next generation fine jewelry company, right, for kind of our generation, basically, uh, that meets all these standards. And it's always stayed there. Potentially the implementation obviously gets adjusted, right, in terms of like the fact that we come up with Curate or how we're, you know, filling in the brand or but the actual core DNA and what we want to achieve and who our woman is has been the same, which is actually interesting. I don't know if that's for most companies, but we just had this very strong feeling of what we wanted to do. So, yeah. Coming up, pushing through tough moments and keeping things going. As we all know, entrepreneurship isn't easy. Can you talk to me about a particular moment, maybe where you just thought, what did I get myself into? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Yes, yes, yes. Well, first of all, I think, and then I'll get into the moment. I think as an entrepreneur, somebody, another entrepreneurial friend of mine told me, sometimes you just can't, if you constantly, like, they're just going to be ups and downs. And when you have the downs, if you think about it for too long, you just have to almost put one foot in front of the other. And I'm reading Shoe Dog now, and I just started. But he has this great quote that I don't remember exactly how it went. But essentially, it goes like, just put one foot in front of the other and don't think about the destination. Just get there kind of thing. Like, don't think about the journey. And it's kind of true that if you question yourself, especially when things are not going well, then you kind of like, you can't. It's too much energy. So you kind of just have to do, do, do. And then before you know it, it's good again. Um, So that, I think, is just something in general. And particularly, like, just hard month, I would say, was in December last year when we had, you know, we had like, we go on sale twice a year. So we had our Black Friday sale. So we did like really good, like above expectations. And essentially the team was just beyond overwhelmed. So there was, we were still fulfilling in-house. It was complete chaos to essentially get everything shipped out. And my husband wasn't, he was traveling or he wasn't feeling well. I forgot what it was, but he wasn't there. And I have a two-year-old And I believe at some point even she was sick. And that was just like two weeks of horror. I remember just like walking through the rain and being like, what have I done? And why am I doing this? Right. Because she, I think she was teething and fever and the nanny wasn't there. And I had to actually at some point bring her into the office on a Saturday while she wasn't feeling well to help pack because you also have to be there with the team. Right. You can't just be like guys figured out at all. Um, So it was just absolute craziness. And, um, 
yeah, sometimes you're like, what is this? Why am I doing this? Like you could do what you kept know. you going. You just kind of have to keep well, going. Well, in those but... moments, you just have to keep going. Yeah. Like you don't even, there's not actually something that keeps you going. And then when you kind of get out of it, the things that may, do bring me up really much is when I, for instance, read customer comments. So like at some point we did a survey with their customers and honestly, like reading the customer comments, like brought tears to my eyes because it just made me so happy that people appreciate what we're doing because sometimes you're as a founder as well you mostly hear the negative stuff i would say right like what and bush and i are very hard on ourselves too so we're constantly pushing ourselves to do more to do better um and from the team as well like usually the stuff that boils up is the stuff that you know is not good <laughs> right, right so when you hear from the and even from like customer service we always hear when they're the you know they're the, the issues not stuff, the good stuff yes. So when I read that, I was like, okay, wow, like people do really get it and there's the good stuff and we're doing this for a reason. Or for instance, when we have a giving back program and once in a while, Bush and I also go to the school and we see the kids and we give them the books. Like those are the moments that really like lighten you up and brighten you up. Or when we talk to other younger sometimes uh, girls or women that are inspired and want to like learn how we did this, that makes me really happy because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to help. I want to help, you know, and do like something good. So that makes everything right and good. But I'm not going to lie. It's like really hard. It's nothing compared to, I think, any of the corporate jobs that I did. And Bushra is the same. It's just so much stress, right? We have people that also have kids on the team and they have to feed their kids. And you have to make payroll and you have to make your customers happy and your investors happy. And it's kind of nonstop. And it's really good, but it's also... Not definitely not for everybody. It's almost one of those things that if you think about it, would I do it again? You'd be like, mm, if I knew what it entailed, maybe not. But at the same time, you're very happy that you're here. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes. No, I, I definitely can relate to you because I'm like, eh, if I knew how hard this was, I probably wouldn't have started. You have to be a bit naive to start a <laughs> exactly, business. Exactly. Uh, but now once you're here, it's like, eh, I don't see myself doing anything else. No, for what. sure. It's it's super addictive. And I think once you, it's basically, I think the main thing is that it's, you if you really love your job, Right. If you love what you're doing, you kind of on the one hand, you're always working, but on the other hand, you're never working. It's kind of right. We call it like work life integration. So essentially, I'm working all the time but at the same time you like have. That. Yeah. Instead of balance. But in, but at the same time, it's so enjoyable. Like if you give me a day off, I would want to work like that's the you know, I want to because it just fulfills me. And actually, when I had my kid, I know every mom is different and to each their own. But for me. It's already such a shift in kind of who you are. Um, after two days, I was dying to work. I was like, I, I already like suddenly I'm this mother and I'm breastfeeding and you just feel like this cow almost, you know, like this like <laughs> basal, like different role that you suddenly have. And my identity was always like workaholic, you know, yeah. it was like, I need to just work for a couple hours and get out some emails. So I literally went down to the restaurant and just started working for a couple hours. I felt so much better. Did you take any time off after the baby was born? Well, I guess 48 hours before I started <laughs> sending out emails, but because I really wanted to and I felt yeah. I literally felt so much better. It was like yeah. a jolt of happiness that came inside yeah. of me, you know, um, I just felt very strange just suddenly being constrained to this. Yeah, producer of milk and just like <laughs> warmth. And so, as much as I love my 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 kid, obviously, but I yeah, for me big part of my identity is what I do. So. How do you balance, you know, motherhood and running a business? Yeah, it's tough because you have this or feeling integrate. Of, How do you integrate it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's tough because you kind of always feel like you 
I really, my mom was stay-at-home mom, right? So, and she's amazing. So you always have this kind of guilt of like not doing that. But then I read the research and I see that actually working mothers are really good for their kids too. And you give an example. So, but I haven't had an example of how to do it because my mom wasn't working. And even around me, like, honestly, none of my mom's uh, friends' moms were. So like, I read Lean In to kind of get an idea and I, you know, look around, but it's, it's, you don't really have like this example of who to emulate. So you're just kind of figuring things out on the fly. Um, and how I do it is basically, I still try to give her a lot of my daughter, a lot of like really high quality attention. So basically I can't give her the same hours, obviously, because of the fact that I work a lot, but the hours that I give her, I try to do it by like very intense in the sense of like no phone really talk to her explain stuff like constantly and also just make sure that when i'm not around have a really good nanny right so not just like saving on that but actually investing in somebody that i feel is just as almost just as good as if i were there um as a replacement and i think that's basically the way to do it is just high quality time instead of time in and of itself. That's really great advice. And then if you could go back and tell yourself one thing before starting your company, what would it be? I would have traveled before. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's stupid, but like I really, uh, I went straight from, you know, MJ to, to Orate because of the transition. And uh, I feel I just should have taken like a month off or something just to kind of get my head free or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And now, you know, that I have a kid, it's even harder. Like, how would I, I don't know how I would, uh, I guess, would travel with her, but it's not the same. So I think, no, before starting a business, just take some time off to really kind of like change your mind for, or just clear your mind and then get into it. I think that's very healthy. And then would you say there was anything that you learned at Mark Jacobs that you applied to the business yeah, that a lot. you have now? I feel that's what I think is very helpful, even though Bush and I haven't done a startup before, which I think is something that maybe I also would have loved to do is had worked in a startup for like a year somewhere else just to see that. We do have, you know, she has the finance expertise. And then I had, of course, like consulting expertise. But then Mark Jacobs taught me the whole, like the way fashion works, basically, right? So whether it's the merchandising, the pricing, the design, the finance side, the retail side. Um, and one thing it actually showed me was the why we didn't want to do wholesale, right? Because it just showed me how wholesale can essentially, how do I say that, um, disconnect you with your customer, right? Because you don't get actually any information. So give it to wholesale and then wholesalers kind of tell you, okay, this is what happened, but you're not hearing it from her mouth, right? You're hearing it from an intermediary. So that was one of the reasons why I was like, wow, we, we have to be D to C. We need to like constantly have that relationship with our customer, even though it's much harder, right? If we would start selling in a department store, you get, you know, your margins are less, but you get so much more f free marketing because they're doing the marketing for you. But for the long run, I don't think it's good because you just, again, like even for instance, I designed the pieces, but it's not me, you know, getting high on some like island deciding this is the new trend it's us constantly talking to a woman um, and asking her what she wants again that's why i meant like she dictates so and then i design for what she's actually looking for how are you getting that feedback are you in the stores talking to your customer i mean social media yeah you can collect a lot of information kind there. of all of it so so obviously online is kind of easier because you get you know there's data on the site and then social you know obviously there are the comments and on stories we sometimes ask them to vote and things like that um 
And then in retail, we really set up processes ourselves where essentially we get daily report from every store on what the customers are saying, literally what they like, what they don't like, what they want to see differently, kind of super detailed. Um, and then Boucher and I make sure that we're actually in the stores at least, I would say, once a month for a day because you need to keep that kind of contact. And we just love it. At some point I was selling so much, but now we are doing other stuff. But I really <laughs> like being on the it's, – it actually gives like a lot of like good energy yeah. just being on the floor, yeah. you know? And then we have Curate, the, the home try-on styling box that where women actually fill out like kind of a survey. It sounds more formal, but like cool questions essentially about what they like. And that gives us a lot of information too on kind of what they're looking for, the trends they see, what they like, what they don't like. Um, so basically our three kind of channels all give us information into what the woman is looking for. And then we have focus groups, right? Uh, at both and quantitative surveys. So we kind of just try to do everything to really be on the pulse of what she needs and wants. And it also helps that I guess we're our customer and my friends all, thank God, love Orate. So, you know, and not, you know, in the beginning, I guess they bought it because they were supporting their friend. But now every birthday or whatever they want, they actually buy it. So they, they give me a lot of feedback too. Oh, that's great. Yeah. How does Curate work? So Curate is a proprietary channel that we basically build from scratch. It's a at-home styling box. So how it works is you literally go to our site, you fill out. If you're busy, it's three minutes. If you want to give us more time, it's like 15. So you can kind of decide. Some people are more control. Some people are busy and like let, let you know us style you. And then essentially you fill out with some questions on your style preferences, your budget, you know, literally the color of gold that you like, whatever it is. Um, and then our team of stylists put together a box for you. It's free of cost. You get it at home. You have a week to try it on. Get five pieces. Uh, you keep what you like. You send back what you don't. You could send back everything. It doesn't cost you a thing. And essentially, that's it. So it's a way for, and it came across through our focus groups, it's a way for our women that are either busy and don't have time to go to the store or really want to get styled and don't have time to go to the store or just are not living near a store and they still want to like feel the product before they buy for all of those solutions, there's essentially curate. Oh, I love that. I need to, I need to sign yeah, up. Yeah, you should totally do it. Uh, and then do you get a box every month? Or no, so it's once? not subscription-based okay. because we personally, for now at least, we don't like the kind of commitment like that. We want mm -hmm. you know women to basically keep the power once again. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can order another box if you like. Oh, that's great. So yeah. what's, what's next? What's coming up? That's really exciting for Ari. Oh, just more, I would say, like pedal to the metal. Is that how you say it? <laughs> yes. So pedal just to the like metal. fuel to the fire, pedal to the metal, whatever you want to call it. So just expansion, essentially. Uh, we really have a, like I was saying, I think we have a very clear idea of who we are. And so far it's worked well, thank God. But now it's just kind of expansion on all cylinders. So online really grow much more. Uh, you know, we've been growing like 400% year over year, but really continuing that. Um, and then retail, opening more stores and curate, definitely continuing that. Um, and also, yeah, those are, I guess, the main things. And that with that comes, you know, hiring more people. So whoever's looking for a job can definitely like should send their resume because we're always looking for people. I think incoming is always better yes, when people are yes. actually passionate about the brand and then they they apply. And um, and even potentially international expansion. Um, so kind of just like growing on all fronts. What roles are you hiring for now? Or the main one we're looking for now is a, a head of operations. 
So the whole <laughs> December debacle, basically yes. we don't want that in December 2019. No, but in all serious, is somebody to basically a supply chain expert um, so that Bush and I can focus more on our uh, other strengths. But also there's different roles. Like that's why whoever, like there's somebody in graphics we're looking mm -hmm. for, somebody um, to help with more of the uh, influencer side on marketing. We can also talk about what, later. Yeah, yeah, let's definitely talk about that later. What is... Um, What's your typical hiring process? Do you do anything out of the ordinary? I think we're very diligent. So we, we always do assignments. So I don't know if that's out of the ordinary, but we definitely, so depending on whatever role it is, like if it's for a creative role, we ask them to, you know, design a newsletter or like an Instagram feed or comments or whatever it is. If it's for like finance role, we ask them to like build a P&L. Um, so we do, but it starts off with essentially, you know, very quickly, Usually somebody else on the team starts screening. Uh, then we do a phone call. Then we do in person. Then we do, you know, the assignments. Then we start doing reference checks. Um, sometimes we do even after that, like a trial day or two days, because depending on how senior the person is, we also want to see how they fit into the team and team fit. And then that's it. The role is there. Um, what I did learn along the way is that it also is, which I guess makes sense, but more about gut than about resume. You know, we some, oh, yeah, some of the, before. you know, I would say um, wrong hires we made sometimes or like lessons we learned was that we looked too much at the paper and not enough at like the actual fit. So I think it's really important. Like people can also just learn things if they're right. the right fit. And culture is so important. Exactly. What is the culture like at R8? How do you describe it in three <sighs> words? I would say very direct, okay. but not in a, not in a in a kind way, but very, there's no politics. Mm -hmm. I think Bush and I are both very not, no BS, right? So it's kind of, these are KPIs, go do it. Very much like um, non-micromanagement. So letting people really run the sh run their own show, mm -hmm. being very honest, open, having fun. I think we laugh a lot. Like we're That's actually great. like have a good time together. I would say work hard, play hard, if I'd have to say it in one in one go. Um, yeah, so we, we, we really like, I think everybody's super passionate about all right. Otherwise, I don't think they would be there because, yeah, it's a lot of work, right? <laughs> but um, we also have a lot of good times together. And I think it's really important that you like the people you work with. I think that was one of the things I really liked. Um, and both my, you know, at Mark Jacobs and BCG, if you work with the right people, almost everything is tolerable. Yeah. And then if you're doing something that you're really passionate about, it's even better. I 100% I right? agree. Yeah. You, gotta, you spend most of your time working. Exactly. So you got to enjoy the people yeah. that are around yeah. you. Yeah. Up next, fundraising and going global, plus a surprise. This is your Entrepreneurista Tip of the Week, presented by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. At Socialfly, we're always buying paid social ads for our clients. And one of our favorite places to advertise is on LinkedIn. What if you could reach the right professionals the right way? Imagine the best place for marketers, a place where you stand out against a backdrop of stand-up brands, a place that has exactly the people you're looking for, and even better, they're looking for you, a place where you can move customer relationships forward, a place a lot like LinkedIn. When you advertise on LinkedIn, the world's largest professional community, you have the opportunity to build long-term relationships with your customers. Relationships that often translate into high-quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. The first step? Talking to the right audience. With a community of 600 million professionals on LinkedIn, you have access to the world's business leaders, decision makers, 
plus the people who influence those decision makers. Plus, LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools help you zero in on reaching the right audience down to their job title, company name, industry, and more. Better targeting equals a message your customer cares about, which in turn leads to more trust with your customers. And guess what? We have a special offer for you. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash entrepreneurs SF. That's linkedin.com slash entrepreneurs SF for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. I know that you ended up fundraising. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? Would you say it was easy for you because you were in finance or your business partner was yeah. working in finance? In a way, it was both easy and hard at the same time. If that, I'll explain why, I guess. But it was easy in the sense that a lot of people came to us. So it was like inbounds, which made it easy. Um, it was hard because it's still distracting from the everyday business, right? You At the end of the day, even if people come to you and say, like, like to invest, you still need to, you know, build a presentation, yeah. models, like all your, your whole storytelling, uh, sit with everybody, and more importantly, figure out who the right partners are. Because at the end of the day, they're going to own a part of your company. So it's also a little bit like a marriage, maybe not like a full-fledged marriage, but it's still, you know, your family after that. Uh, so finding the right partners to work with. Um, and it's kind of, you know, you don't have that much time to actually get to know each other. So figuring out that quickly, listening to your guts, um, so it's, yeah, both easy and hard at the same time. And we also didn't want to raise too much in the beginning. So I think that was very important to, A, be able to, well, not dilute ourselves too much, right? And B, be able to just continue to be scrappy. How many uh, investors do you have? So we have like a couple of VCs, two or two VCs, one family office, and then a couple like angels. So we kept also the cap table, um, not too messy mm -hmm. in terms of like amounts of people. Uh, to deal with. Um, but yeah, so it was, I would say like, it's definitely something that's just distracting for the business. So what Boucher and I have always tried to do is keep it really efficient, uh, work on it, you know, basically get the deck out, get the numbers out and then just in or out kind of thing. Um, as opposed to having it drag on and just kind of be a, be a drain because at the same time you need to like operate your business. You want to focus on that. Right. You right. don't want to focus on, uh, on fundraising too much. Do you want to raise again? I think yes, yes. In order to grow, uh, even though we're very close, we're basically profitable. But at the same time, if we, you know, the fuel to the fire, pedal to the yeah, metal, all yeah. those things, uh, yeah. And then, um, in terms of all of the investors that you have, how often do you talk to them? Do you do quarterly updates? It really depends on the investor and the profile. But I would say, on average, every like three, four months. Uh, and it depends on like who we're, you know, who we need also for what. Like if we have advice on, uh, you know, international expansion, we have somebody we talk to. If it's more about like the finance side, it's somebody else. If it's about introductions, it's somebody else. So it really depends on kind of the profile of the investor. Uh, but so far we've gotten very friendly ones where it's really more about to help us, which is great, right? Because one of the things I think that is sometimes the case as a founder, I'm sure you have that too, is that it's kind of lonely. Like you don't have anybody taking care of you or... Um, you know, that has your back in the sense of like in big companies, you always have somebody that's kind of, you know, there to support you. Uh, so at Orate, that's also our investors in a way. Like that's what, you know, they're there to, of course they want results, but that's in corporates as well as what your, uh, your manager would want. 
So to kind of have them to have her back and support us, that also just is something that's needed sometimes. For sure. And have they ever disagreed with the direction that you both want to go in? I don't think they have enough stake to it. <laughs> Bushra and I still like hold enough equity that we can uh, luckily make, make the, call the shots. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so far uh, they're giving Good. us, you know, but it, it will see as we scale. Like, I think that's something that's important. And of course, Steve Jobs got fired from his own company, right? Like things can happen. So it's something you have to be aware of as you, as you scale of how you, you know, keep control or just make sure that you find investors that are aligned on your vision and your brand and that will work with you and not against you. Uh, so something that Stephanie and I like to do is surprise and delight our guests. And this is also something that we recommend uh, that our clients do for their social media audiences. So we yep. actually got a present for you. It's in your Entrepreneurs to Swag bag near, oh, your, you. um, near your chair. That's amazing. And we have all this Entrepreneurs to Swag, but it, the actual uh, surprise is in, yes, it's yes? in there. And we got one for you and your co-founder. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. So yeah, open it. Okay, I will. <laughs> I hope I won't make too much noise. <laughs> I'll leave this one for B when she's back. Oh, I love this. It's for <laughs> put the some jewelry. jewelry. Yes. Yeah, put some jewelry in that's it. That's amazing. Um, this is so your cute. Bed, on, at your office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I love perfect. it. I'm you already put, it on my put desk. one in. Yes, awesome. Totally. This um, is so sweet. Thank you. Yes, yes. I'm glad you love it. It um, actually makes me think of uh, future product categories for us. Ooh. I would love one of the things that I, we're thinking about. I'd love your thoughts on that is like to what, when do you go international? So this okay. is something that we're kind of brainstorming on right now. Um, if you look at a lot of DTCs, they kind of, stayed in, within the U.S., right? They haven't, like if you take Warby Parker as an example, they're really U.S.-driven. Actually, now there are a lot of like satellite other companies that are doing it in France, in Holland. Warby so, Parker? Yes, it's basically a different brand yeah. name, but yeah, people have basically copied them in, in different uh, countries. So at what point as a company do you start going international versus focusing on the U.S.? What yeah, do you think? I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to advise <laughs> this because we haven't gone international. Yeah. Um, but I would think that, you know, you would want to really build your footprint here before going international mm -hmm. um, because I just know from other people who have taken their companies internationally, it's it can be a lot so to work. manage. Mm -hmm. You know, you really have to think about the structure and the integration and, and really that operational component. So I'd say... First, hire that director of operations, yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then think about going yeah, international. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and then I know that there there are different partners, people that you can partner with to take your company internationally. Um, but I I probably wouldn't be the best person to ask. Yeah, it, no, but it's a, yeah, it's it's just because the reason we're thinking about it. But I totally agree with you. The operational complexities are not uh, pretty. So that's something that we'd have to figure different out. Different taxes and exactly. laws and HR rules in exactly. different countries. It's just that so many people are asking about like yeah. when we're going there. Yeah. It feels very like exciting to go, you know what I mean? And because I'm from Holland, they're yes. already like pulling us and Bushra and Dubai. We just got this like huge like Vogue, basically story in uh, Vogue Arabia. Uh, they're kind of pushing us to go there. So it's kind of this constant debate of like, do we go, do we not, when, how? Um, so it's something we need to brainstorming about yeah yeah i mean can you go there just through e-commerce and just ship over there or, that we already yeah. do okay yeah and that's going very well that's why it's kind of like where's the jewelry made in new york in new york oh yeah okay. so that's probably an important thing so for us it was very important that it was obviously ethically sourced um but also that we could oversee the quality and also help kind of 
the like old craftsmanship in a way, right? So it's literally produced here in New York by three, four generation jewelers um, with their hands here. And we can literally, we go every day to the to their studios essentially so we can see it. Where is we it? We talk to them. Cool. In different places in Manhattan actually. Yeah. How did you find? Oh my God, it was so much work. <laughs> <clears throat> we literally knocked on, because it's a very kind of, family-oriented, reputational business where people have known each other forever. So suddenly they see these, like, two random girls knocking on doors being like, hey, we're starting a jewelry company. So in the very beginning, nobody took us seriously. And then eventually there was this, like, three-generation jewelry company family that were like, hey, these girls seem onto something. And actually they invested um, in us. And then they kind of helped us open the doors to other vendors to work with but it wasn't it definitely wasn't easy um i'm sure it never is but it had to you know you had to kind of like prove yourself and as they saw kind of the sales and i guess the orders that were coming from them grow and grow and grow they were like okay this is this is good and that's kind of how we how we started but it was just literally knocking on doors and just kind of figuring out who was good and then of course we had our we were also difficult because we had our whole list of requirements to make sure everything was, you know, ethically sourced and transparent and all of that. So it took some time to find the right partners there too. How often are you designing new pieces? So we launch every month roughly, but it's not like on a fixed day. It's literally per occasion. So, you know, now it's Mother's Day. So we launch something for, or Mother's Day's on its way. So we launch something in honor of mothers uh, and not specifically just moms, but mother of whatever. So you could be mother of a company, mother of a cat, mother of, you know, a concept, anything. Because, um, it, again, it's very about inclusiveness. Um, sometimes it's because of a season. Um, we did this Ode to Women campaign in last holiday where we actually heroified women that we found inspiring and designed collections specifically for them. So it really depends on... Uh, it could be like women we find inspiring, seasons, events happening. But generally every month there's something new. And how far in advance do you plan for it? The team wishes I <laughs> planned more in advance. It really depends. So some pieces are already ready and some are just, you know, sometimes it does happen that I just wake up and I'm like, I really want to do this. And then you just kind of have to figure out a way to make it happen. And I think that's important. I mean, I saw that at Marc Jacobs, for instance. Of course, there's like a calendar and a plan and everything has to be structured and organized in that way. But you also need to leave room for creativity and trends and things that are happening and kind of set up your supply chain such that it can, you know, accommodate that. Because at the same time, if you start planning years in advance, you're just not agile enough. Are you already planning for the holidays? Yes, yes, yes. We're working <laughs> on that now. Yeah. And again, we also talk to customers for that, yes. right? It's very important what she's looking for and, and why. And, you know, we also want to understand, like, what does she do in her jewelry? Like, Is a lot there of a jewelry trend right now that I should know about? I mean, pearls are, pearls are back, <laughs> <laughs> if you like that. Although we thought that forever, so we designed it a while ago. Uh, anklets. I think that's what we're coming out with a bit. I've worn in, uh, an anklet. I know, like but now it's like summer. <laughs> yeah, it's like this retro trend that's coming. So we, but we always try to, you know, they're the trends, but we tried to make them timeless as well. Yes. It's really about, because it's real gold, so I you want to keep it. I can't wait to sign up for my box. I know. Um, and then what would you say keeps you inspired? I think our women. Honestly, women in general and our women. I think this is really the, the time of women, obviously, given everything that is going on. 
And it's honestly, we are kind of the first generation to set our own rules in how we work. And it, it's kind of the time is ours. And that really inspires me in terms of like how we're building Orate, but also in terms of like how we, you know, our customer and constantly talking to her and really heroifying her and her accomplishments. That really inspires me. And just the women we talk to, like you now, it's very, I love that. And women sometimes literally on in the subway that I meet, like it just doesn't matter. But I think that part is just like, this is our moment. And I think that's very inspiring. And is there a tool or tip that you, that you think that every entrepreneur should have or know about? Well, I would say to find, I mean, I don't know if it's a tool, but I think what's important is that you have somebody that you can lean on, right? So I have Bushra, Bushra is me. I think it's, you know, you can have either it's a co-founder or maybe it's like a mentor or it's an investor. It doesn't matter. But I think as a founder or an entrepreneur, entrepreneurista, right, you need uh, – it's lonely. It is. And you need to have somebody for those dark moments when you feel like you can't do it anymore um, to have your back and to be there for you. I think that's super important. And what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? It means like fighting a war every day <laughs> almost. It's like nonstop – um, yeah, I was talking about it with, uh, somebody in LA who's like new to the entrepreneur world. And he was like, yeah, it feels like you're just running a war every day. Like it's just a constant battle, not in a like aggressive way, but there's, it's never all good, right? There's always something and you kind of have to be okay with that. Um, it's never, yeah, you have to be okay with the unknown and you have mm -hmm. to be okay with things not going perfectly. So I think that's really the most important thing for an and entrepreneur. And if the entrepreneur that you are today could talk to yourself when you were a little girl, what would you tell yourself? To believe in myself, I think, right? So like it took me a while to get where I am in terms of like, oh, can I do this? And I think my husband actually helped me quite a bit with that. He was like, you have great style. You can totally do it. Like he kind of pushed me, which was great. Um, I think if I hadn't had him or I, I don't know, it was just that confidence I'm like an insecure overachiever, I guess. Um, so it took me a while to kind of start believing that I could do it, especially without having any background in it. Um, so maybe if I had told myself that earlier, I would have at least been more confident and potentially even done it earlier. Yeah. And I think women should just listen to, at the end of the day, what really makes them tick. I think that's the most important thing is kind of like going, look, listening to yourself and really yeah, feeling like what makes you happy. And honestly, the worst thing that can happen is that it fails. And then at least you've tried, you have one life. Like, I think if you try it, I think there's nothing better. Like I remember when we just started, I was just so happy that I was doing something that I liked. I was like, even if this doesn't work out, like I've lived in a way, you know? Yes. I definitely need to, um, start listening to my gut a bit more. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's hard. It's hard. And sometimes you need to like meditate yes. or sleep yes. well or go away in order for you to hear yeah, your gut. Just, right. Sometimes it's just like almost dominated by whatever's going on that you can't even hear or listen to your gut anymore. I've learned to do my best to try to make decisions in the moment and like sleep on it. If it's not pressing, that yeah. always helps. Yeah. But so we also have a surprise for all of you listeners. If you'd like to try out Orate, you can use the code entrepreneurista 15 and then get 15. We never go on sale, but in this case, you'll get 15% off anything you pick valid through August, 2019. Thank you so much. Of course. How can everyone find and follow you? So they can, I have, uh, for me specifically and for Busha too, we have an Instagram. So I'm Kan Sophie. She's Lala Bush. 
And then, of course, Ored New York. Um, and then if you want to email us, that's we're both literally Sophie at Ored New York and Bushra at Ored New York. Thank so you. you can follow us on Instagram and then DM us or send us an email, whatever you prefer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks and so much thank for you, everyone, for, for listening. Uh, I'm Courtney, and this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Thanks for listening. 